I have to tell you a funny story, and uh, I had to wait for my kids to leave the room before I told it. <laughs> uh, the other day, my, uh, my four-year-old, uh, who's in preschool, uh, came home, and we were, we were sitting at the dinner table and just talking about our days, and uh, she mentioned to me that she had been uh, invited to uh, a birthday party at her friend, I'm going to change the name, her friend Sally's house, and uh, she said, we were at lunch or breakfast the other day, or lunch the other day, and we were talking, and Sally invited us all to the to the, uh, her birthday party at her house, and she looks at us and says, Mom and Dad, don't worry. Sally said there would be plenty of Coke and beer at the party. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we looked at each other and said, what? What, what are you talking And uh, we laughed about it for a while and wondered about Sally's family a little bit. <laughs> and uh, so fortunately, Becca's uh, good friends with Sally's family and uh, text message Sally's mom, and she was, of course, mortified because she didn't get just a text message from us. She got a text message from most of the parents in the class and the teacher as well. So we laughed and laughed about it, and, uh, and then we thought for a minute. We kind of paused, and, and we looked at Ella, and we said, Ella, what do you tell your classmates about our house? And she then proceeded to tell us about how she would tell her classmates at the lunch table in detail about our family's bathroom habits. <laughs> and she went on in detail, right, and telling them about it. And so what was once something really funny, and we were now mortified personally about that as well. But for whatever reason, our, fourth, our four-year-old has realized that if she wants to get the laughs, She's going to use either bathroom talk or what we call in our house potty talk, right? Now, let's admit it. All of us have a uh, little kind of middle school boy inside of us. That whenever we hear bathroom humor, we tend to laugh or chuckle about a little bit. Well, I have to guarantee you that the middle school boy inside all of us is going to love our passage this morning. How about that for an introduction to a passage? Our passage this morning is taken from Judges chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 12 uh, to verse 30. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Amorites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. 
And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sariah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, it's uh, sometimes hard for us to understand what these kind of ancient and sometimes obscure stories uh, have to do with our lives today, Father. It's sometimes hard to, to imagine how your spirit takes uh, your scriptures and applies them to our hearts, but we know that they do. We know that your scripture has power, that it's unlike any other book ever written, Father, because it comes with the power of your spirit to change our hearts. So, Father, I pray that as we meditate on your word now, as we contemplate its meaning for our lives, that your spirit would come and apply it to our hearts, that we may, be, that we may leave here changed as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we, have a, we have a ceiling fan in our bedroom, and like many ceiling fans, it has three settings. It has uh, a low setting, it has a medium setting, and a high setting. But no matter how hot it is, no matter how hot our house, our house gets in the middle of the summer, we never, ever, ever, ever turn it on high, okay? And here's why. When you turn it on the high setting, it starts to click. Does anybody else's ceiling fan ever do this? Every time it goes around, it starts to click and click and click and click and because it's moving with such force that it can't really even handle it. So we regularly try to turn it on high, but we always end up turning it off because that sound seems like nothing at the beginning, but after time, the clicking just sounds deafening, and we can't handle it, and we turn it off. It is the incessant repetition of the the clicking that's like Chinese water torture on us that we just can't handle, so we always turn it off in frustration. Well, I thought about this week as I, as I thought about the book of Judges. If you've been with us, you know that we are looking at this uh, Old Testament book of Judges and its crazy stories uh, throughout the, rent, the Lenten season. And if you were with us last week, we talked about how the book of Judges really is a book of repetition. It has a cycle in it that continues to repeat over and over and over again. And as it repeats, it becomes more annoying and more frustrating and more maddening as you read the book. 
This week's story is very similar. You can see the the repetition. You can see the, the cycle happen in this story as well. But it even is unique in its own way. And this morning, I'd like to look at just three quick things that this very interesting, somewhat obscure uh, story tells us. It tells us something about the nature of sin. It tells us something about the nature of our rescue. And finally, it tells us something about the nature of our rescuer. The first thing we look at when we see this is we learn something about the, the generational nature or the, the generational character of sin. Verse 12, the passage starts saying this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you read through the whole book, you'll realize this is a common phrase throughout the book. It's repeated some 15 times throughout the book, and it's repeated each time a new story happens or a new cycle happens. The people engage in sin. Often it's, it's idolatry. And, the book, and, and in the book, everybody chooses to do what is right in their own eyes. Everybody creates a law for themselves. And because of that sin, the people become oppressed. God raises up a foreigner or a foreign nation or a wicked king to come and conquer them, and the people become sold into servitude. After a while, this leads them to supplication, or it leads them to to crying out to God for help. They begin to, to beg God for deliverance, for rescue, begging God to save them. And finally, God sends salvation, often in the form of a deliverer or a rescuer who ends up miraculously delivering the people and restoring peace in the nation. The book, as we saw last week, is is considered to be a very dark book. Because what happens is the people don't learn their lesson. They just continue to go back to the, to the sin that ensnared them before. They repeat and continue to return back to living by their own law and by choosing to do what was right in their own eyes. And each time they do it, things seem to get worse or things seem to get more extreme. And in the process, this tells us something about the nature of sin itself. Because the book challenges us to look at the nature of sin as something bigger than just the individual character of sin itself. And here's what I mean by that. There is an individual character to sin. We believe that sin is any time we choose to do our own will. It's any time we choose to live against God's design And one of the things that the scriptures is very clear about is that we are all culpable for the ways that we have rebelled against God. Each one of us has chosen to go our own way, to be our own gods, and in our pride we have chosen to make ourselves a law unto ourselves. No matter how much you and I may blame shift or play the victim— The scriptures plainly speak of our individual guilt before a holy God. Listen to this from Romans 3. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
We all stand before God individually as guilty people, people who are guilty of breaking God's law and are breaking God's and of breaking God's covenant. But what this passage helps us to see is that there is also a generational or cultural characteristic to sin as well. Becca and I have been uh, uh, parents for almost 10 years now, which is hard for us to even believe when we think about it. Uh, and one thing that good parents do is, is good parents are, are constantly on the watch for kind of negative influences that may crop themselves up in the lives of their kids. And, and often they do everything that they can to try to uh, protect their kids from the negative influences that are out there. But after 10 years, we had this conversation the other day, but after 10 years, we've concluded that one of the most harmful influences in the lives of our children when it comes to their spirituality is us. I can't tell you how many times we've looked at our kids and we've said, where did they learn to do that behavior? Where did they learn that habit? Where did they uh, get that reaction? And the answer is almost always... They learned it from us. You see, because our our families are made up of sinners, individual sinners, they create cultures or incubators of sin. There are sinful patterns that, that my kids have learned from me and that their kids will eventually learn from them. And that doesn't mean that my kids don't personally stand guilty before God because of their sin, just like I do. But it does mean that I haven't made it easy on them. I've demonstrated what it's like to sin in very true forms. And what is most scary about it is the fact that often I and we are blind to how we do this day in and day out. But what is true of our families is also true of our culture as well. You see, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we apply a, a certain chronological snobbery. We look at the, the, the God's people in the Old Testament. We see them worshiping carved images or foreign gods. And we think how unenlightened they are to do these sort of things. How, uh, how uh, unwise or unintellectual they are. How come they can't figure out that that's not right? But then you have to ask the question, what would they say about our culture if they were able to see it? What will history say about our sins, sins that are just in the air of our culture that we are often very, very blind to? Our, uh, dom- our denomination, we're part of a denomination called the PCA, and our denomination is going through a, a really interesting process at the moment. We are uh, working on an overture or a a statement of our denomination that uh, confesses covenantal and generational sins that were committed uh, during the civil rights period of our history. You see, our denomination's uh, roots are are in in Southern Presbyterianism. And what has been well documented of late is how the Southern Presbyterian movement actually actively worked against the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Many Presbyterian congregations in the South were known to bar African Americans from their worship services. 
They would misuse or twist the Bible uh, to support racial segregation. And often they would participate in or defend uh, white supremacist organizations in the 1960s. And over the past couple years, uh, these things have brought to light and our denomination is now sorting through how are we supposed to deal deal with this. You see, it's not okay for us to just think nostalgically about our history. We have to look at the skeletons in our closet. We have to take the good with the bad and we have to recognize it. So what this overture or this statement does is it calls the churches in our denomination to recognize this sin, but also to to recognize the continuing character of this sin, to not just recognize it, but to actually confess and repent of it. As you can imagine, whenever a denomination chooses to do this, there is lots and lots of discussion. There's lots and lots of debate. There's lots of arguments that go back and forth to or against And many people have had difficulty with it because they sit and wonder, why should I have to confess the sins of my father's or my grandfather's generation? Why do I have to confess sins that I didn't personally commit or that people that are connected to me way in my past committed? But when we say that, we fail to recognize that sin is bigger than just the individual. Because sin is also generational and it is cultural as well. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see instances, especially uh, in the book of Daniel, where uh, people or Daniel himself would willingly bear the shame of his father's sins. He would confess not just his sins, but the sins of his fathers and his grandfathers. These are all generational and cultural characteristics of sins and we see them on display in the book of judges it says things about people walking in the way of their fathers by doing evil in the sight of the lord and what all of this is is it is a reminder that sin has a far greater grip on our lives than we even realize it is absolutely about us individually but it also has a generational and a cultural element to it as well. And when you start to consider that, it doesn't seem very hopeful, does it? It seems very sad. It seems like this huge thing that just seems overcomable. But in the end, our passage doesn't just leave us there. Because that in the end, it also tells us great news about how God provides rescue from our sin. The second thing we see in our passage is we learn something about the nature of God's rescue. We learn something about the nature of his rescue. When the passage opens up, we learn that that God's people had uh, been conquered by an alliance, an alliance that was led by the Moabites that included the Amorites and the Amalekites, and it was led by uh, a wicked king uh, named Eglon, and he moved in and conquered the city of Palms or the city of Jericho, and he enslaved God's people for 18 years. For 18 years, they were enslaved and ruled by this wicked king. 
And then verse 15 tells us that, that after 18 years, it says, The people of God cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, when we go through the book and when we read through it, the tendency for us when we read this pattern repeated over and over again in the scriptures, the tendency is to think that the people realized their sin, they cried out to God for deliverance, and then God heard and responded. See, we often put the the confession and the repentance before the salvation in the story. But there is no indication from the passage that the people were sorry for their sins or that they had even recognized their sins. But there is every indication that they were simply crying out for God to save their necks, to end their misery, and in spite of that, God still answers. The confession and the repentance comes after the salvation. Now, you may be sitting here wondering, why is that important? What difference does that make at all when we think about that? Well, there is an important distinction here because many people, even today, many believe they are under the impression that they need to clean themselves up before God until he will come into their lives. They think if they can just confess their sins enough, if they can resolve enough to turn themselves away from sin, if they can make sure that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then finally God will enter into their lives. Think about it this way. Whenever we uh, invite guests over to our house, what do we do before they come over? We rush around our house, we try to clean it up, or at least we we move the clutter enough so people can actually walk unobstructed throughout the house, right? We work really hard, whether it is to impress them or whatever it is, to clean our house to impress them before they come over. There's nothing wrong with that. But in the end, I think that people think that is what they need to do in their hearts before God can ultimately enter in. But the reality is in our story that Israel was just an absolute mess. There was no confession. There was no repentance. They were simply at their wits end and were crying out to God to save their necks. They were crying out for God to rescue them. And what that tells us is that God isn't necessarily looking for us to clean ourselves up before he enters into our lives. Even if he was asking us to do that, we could never come close to cleaning ourselves up enough to make it a place for God to come in. Instead, he simply wants us to cry out to him in the middle of our mess, to cry out to him and ask for his rescue. When I thought about this week, I thought about uh, the old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, and the lyric goes like this. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry or wait till you're better, you will never come at all. All the fitness that he requires is to feel your need for him. So our passage tells us something about uh, the nature of our rescue But finally, our passage tells us something about the nature of our rescuer as well. 
The hero in our story is uh, an obscure man named Ehud. And Ehud uh, forms a sword, the passage tells us, uh, that's about 12 inches long. And he enters into this wicked king's presence, Eglon's presence, and he violently thrusts this sword uh, into Eglon's stomach. And the passage tells us very vividly that, that he leaves the sword in and the fat comes over and covers over the sword. And in the process, all of Eglon's bowels are spilled out all over the ground in front of them. Afterwards, Ehud uh, escapes and Eglon is left alone in this horrible situation. And the passage in some ways uh, humorously tells us uh, that his servants didn't go in to check on him because they smelled the smell and believed that Eglon was just going to the bathroom. He was relieving himself. But after a while, they became too embarrassed. And then they went in and checked on Eglon only to find that this great king had been assassinated by Ehud, the deliverer. Once Eglon dies, Ehud goes back and he leads the Israelites in victory over all those forces that had conquered them 18 years before that. But what's so interesting about our passage is that it's very careful to tell us one very small detail about Ehud, this deliverer. It tells us that he was a left-handed man. And you wonder, why is that so significant that the gospel or the, the, the writers would, would tell us this detail about Ehud? And, and many commentators have argued as, as to why, why is it so significant that it tells us that he is a left-handed man? Well, there's two kind of theories of thought. One is that uh, it mentions he's a left-handed man because he had some sort of deformity to him. And what we know about ancient cultures is when someone had a deformity, they were considered to be uh, worthless uh, in the ancient world. They would be considered to be an outcast. The other option is that he was just plainly a left-handed man and ancient cultures, sorry if you're left-handed here, but ancient cultures would view you with suspicion if you were a left-handed person. You couldn't be trusted if for some reason you were left-handed. But either option, either interpretation of whatever it means, we learn that Ehud was a very unlikely hero. And as you read throughout the book, what you'll consistently find in the book of Judges is that the judges or deliverers were not the people that you would expect. They were all different in some way, or they would have some sort of characteristic to them that would be surprising that they would be the hero, that they would be the rescuer. And we'll see this as we go throughout the book over the next couple weeks. But ultimately, what I believe the scriptures are doing here is they are foreshadowing. They are foreshadowing the ultimate unlikely hero that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, many people believed that the long-awaited rescuer, the ultimate rescuer of God's people, would come in pomp and circumstance, that he would come in a visible demonstration of his might and his power and his holiness. But instead, the Gospels tell us that he comes in humility and weakness. 
He was born into poverty amongst scandal to a couple of teenagers. He lived in relative obscurity for 30 plus years. He surrounded himself with sinners and a ragtag bunch of followers. And in the end, he sacrificed himself for our sake so that you and I could experience life. He was the ultimate unlikely hero but he was the very hero that our hearts needed most. Friends, the tendency for us whenever we think about God is to think that we have to clean ourselves up. To think that somehow we've got to build our spiritual resume to make ourselves look better than we really are. But instead, the gospel tells us to give up on our efforts at trying to clean ourselves up. To stop trying to clean up the house of our hearts because our sin ultimately is too great and is too deep for each and every one of us to overcome. Instead, the gospel calls us to let our rescuer, the unlikely hero of Jesus Christ, to overcome our sin by virtue of his death and his resurrection. All that requires is for us to own up to our mess and to cry out for him to deliver us. Let's pray.